military medal. He joined the RAF in 1934 and spent 36 years in the service, mostly serving in or closely associated with the RAF marine craft, both here and abroad. Uh, he took part in the evacuation of Dunkirk, as coxswain in charge of a seaplane tender, and both as a coxswain and launch captain operated in the Dover Straits, the Channel Area, and the North Sea in high-speed rescue launches. He commanded a long-range rescue launch en route to the Far East when the war ended. And after the war carried on in numerous staff service staff posts within the Marine Branch, and in 1964 was appointed Director of the RAF Marine Craft at the Ministry of Defence. He retired in December 1970, and uh, he is the Life President of the Air Sea Rescue and Marine Craft Sections Club. So, we certainly have a, a man with a very distinguished record, and one who I'm sure knows his subject uh, inside out, and we're delighted to welcome him along tonight to tell us something of the formation of this service, and we hope uh, he can give us some reminiscences and personal anecdotes of his service in that section. I welcome Group Captain Clarence. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I belong to a small and extremely unpretentious sailing club. It's not entirely by chance, I imagine. It seems mainly to appeal to small and extremely unpretentious people. And I've been a member for seven years. But I think there's one thing that we members of this club will be prepared to boast about and that is that every Tuesday evening, from the first week in April until the last week in October, there is a talk on sailing or on boats or on some subject closely akin to sailing in boats. And in June of this year, one of these Tuesday evening talks was on the subject of air sea rescue. It was given by the pilot of one of the Navy's sea rescue helicopters. He was a young chap. He was enthusiastic. His operational experience was slap bang up to date. And he left us in no doubt as to his personal dedication to the rescue of people from the sea. He gave us a jolly good talk. And certainly, I wasn't the only one there who got a great deal of pleasure from what he had to say to us. On the other hand, I imagine I was probably the only one for whom this pleasure was laced with more than a modicum of nostalgic melancholy. Because in all that he had to say about search and rescue, I'm about to ask you to rescue today. And all that he had to tell us about the 124 incidents to which he and his fellows had been called during the preceding 12 months, 
There was not one word of any service aircraft having been in distress over the sea. There was not one word about any service aircrew being rescued or even needing to be rescued from the sea. And there was no mention whatsoever of any RAF rescue launches having been present at the scene of search or in any other way associated with these rescue incidents. Now, of course, sensibly, we can only rejoice that this should be so. We can only be thankful that the incidents of service aircraft and service air crews being in distress over the sea um, are now so few and far between that they didn't even figure in the top 124. But the point I'm making is this, that originally air-sea rescue was all about service aircraft being in distress over the sea. It was all about service air crews needing to be rescued from the sea. And for the first few years, at any rate, it was almost all about RAF high-speed launches deployed in a rescue role. And there's no doubt that if we want to look for the origins of air-sea rescue, we must look first at the pre-war marine craft sections of the Royal Air Force. And if the chairman's opening remarks meant anything at all, you will imagine that it's the greatest temptation in the world for me to spread myself on tracing this pedigree, that is the link between the pre-war RDF marine craft sections and the air-sea rescue service. Uh, and in fact, I intended to do just that. But uh, this afternoon, when my wife said goodbye to me and wished me well in a slightly devious way, I think, she said, now be careful. If once you start talking about RDF marine craft, you'll keep on talking forever and you'll bore people to death. And I'm sure she was right. And insofar as I start off with the feeling that I only have a 50-50 chance of not boring people to death, I shall cut down the odds against me. And therefore, be very brief on this particular aspect of air-sea rescue. It's not a very well-known fact that the Royal Air Force has operated its own fleet of small craft since the inception of the service in 1918, when it took over 239 craft from the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. And in the main, these craft were established and deployed in direct or indirect support of aircraft. And between 1918 and the outbreak of war in 1939, the vast majority of them were established and deployed in direct support of seaplanes. So wherever you had a seaplane station or a seaplane base, you had a marine craft section with motorboats there to wet nurse the aircraft.
And although if you went from base to base or station to station, you would find some variety, some variation in the task that the boats, tasks that the boats performed, there was one which was common to every unit or every station from which seaplanes, by which I mean float planes and flying boats, uh, operated. And that was called standby flying. And what it was, in fact, was this, that one craft was always underway before the first aircraft left its moorings or came down the slipway, and it didn't cease to be underway until the last aircraft hooked up to its moorings or went back up the slipway. In other words, it was a safety and rescue boat within a fairly clearly defined local flying area. By the time we got to uh, 1930, or approaching 1930, there was another problem looming up, and that was that by that time it had become a growing practice for conventional land-based aircraft to fly over the sea uh, as part of their summer maneuvers or other exercises. And the problem was, of course, how could we extend our localized standby flying role, if you like, to include for the safety, albeit on an ad hoc basis, of these land-based based aircraft flying over the sea. And it, it, it was met by detaching odd craft to places like Ramsgate or Dover during the summer maneuver month. And although I suppose uh, um, this was adequate or almost adequate in 1930 or 1931, um, it soon became obvious that it was so far from ideal that something had to be done to give us a better potential for providing a safety and rescue service outside the local flying areas used by float planes and flying boats. And the answer to this problem it came along in 1936 when we took delivery from the British Powerboat Company at Hythe of the first of the 64-foot high-speed launches. This craft, which was called, which was designated the RF-100, was 64 feet in length. It had three Napier Sea Lion engines. It did 40 knots. And I suppose I can say that it was to our other marine craft what uh, its contemporary, the Sunderland aircraft, was to the London and the Scapper and the wooden-hulled Southampton. It was a great step in the right direction. And so, I think we can say that by 1936, there was the embryo from which air sea rescue was later to develop. The advent of RDF-100 uh, was certainly a milestone in the development of the capacity of RDF marine craft, and it was a watershed in their transition from the purely local role of standby flying to the wider responsibilities of sea search and rescue.
But of course, in no sense was it the start of air-sea rescue as we were to know it. And in fact, five years, or nearly five years, were to elapse before air-sea rescue formally came into being. And nearly three years were to go by before the first significant move was made towards the formation of a coordinated sea rescue service. And this came about very largely, I think, because the then CNC Bomber Command, who was Sir Edgar Ludlow Hewitt, made the strongest possible representations in 1938 to the Air Ministry that nothing like enough uh, was being done for the safety of his Bomber Command aircrew. He had two complaints in particular. One was that in 1937, um, and this is odd in retrospect, in 1937 there had been uh, a widening of the issue of rubber dinghies, inflatable dinghies, and uh, pyrotechnics, which up to that time had been restricted to flying boats and carrier-borne aircraft. This was to be extended in 1937 to include torpedo bombers, general reconnaissance aircraft, and of course flying boats and the carrier-borne aircraft. But not, strangely enough, the Bomber Command. And this is one of the points that stuck in the CNC's gills a bit. The other complaint he had was that though at that time, and by now we're in the tag end of 1938, by that time, although we had seven high-speed launches deployed individually in a semi-rescue role around the coast, there was none located between Tayport in the north and Felixstowe in the south. There's a gap of 400 miles. And CNC Bomber Command said, now look, this is the very area, the very stretch of coastline through which 90% of my aircraft are committed to fly as part of their wartime task and indeed as part of their training role in preparation of their wartime task. And it's not jolly well good enough. And he put up very strong case to the Air Ministry, which resulted in April of 1939, in a meeting at the Air Ministry, uh, which was called to review the peacetime requirements of sea rescue. And um, they decided three things. One was that financial authority was obtained to call us to get 13 more launches, The other was that we redeployed two craft that were due to go overseas and put one at Grimsby and one at uh, Great Yarmouth. And we brought down the boat from Tayport to Blythe, thus putting a thin red line, if you like, down the coast to meet in part at least Bomber Command's requirements. But the real thing it did, the most significant thing it did, of course, um, was that it decided that the operational and administrative control of what launches we had, and of course we only had launches in those days, there were no aircraft in, in, in air-sea rescue or sea rescue, 
um, the, the operational and administrative control of all rescue resources, if you like, uh, um, were to be given to headquarters coastal command. So, 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 by the time war came along in September 1939, um, there was at least, if you like, a poor man's sea rescue service, a coordinated um, sea rescue service, albeit spread about pretty thinly on the ground. Between the outbreak of war and the advent of air sea rescue proper in, in the spring of 1941, I suppose there were only two other things of note, two other moves of note. One was an agreement brought about between, um, between as it was then, Air Vice Marshal Harris, who was Deputy Chief of the Air Staff, and the Admiral Director of Navy small craft that the Navy would participate in sea rescue as and when they could spare their small coastal craft from other duties. So that again was, was a, a policy type step in the right direction. And I said one other thing, in fact there were two other things, um, all these in 1940, one being that fighter command managed to borrow from Army Cooperation Command uh, which by this time, of course, had no army to cooperate with anyway, um, they, they loaned them 12 Lysanders uh, to be used in the Dover Straits area in, in a sea search and rescue role. And finally, there was a very close liaison, and this was damnably important as it turned out, there was a very close liaison between uh, Sir Keith Park, who was then AOC 11 Group, and Vice Admiral Dover um, about the cooperation and the sharing of what resources existed as between the Navy and ourselves in that area in in performing the sea search and rescue task that we had to perform. And that brings up 1940, at the turn of the year, under pressure from the seas in sea of the operational commands, a directorate of air sea rescue was formed in February 1941. Its first director was an air commodore Croke, who was supported by a Captain Howe, RN, and it was air commodore Croke who coined and recommended the title of air sea rescue because he said it's a service committed to the rescue of aircrew from the sea, which indeed it was. Now I've got here an extract from the policy directive to the Directorate of Air Sea Rescue. And it says this, if I may quote it, the primary duty of an air sea rescue organization is to rescue airmen, not aircraft, from the sea. In times of peace, such an organization has two aims, the maintenance of morale and the closely allied humanitarian impulse to save life. In times of war, to these two aims must be added a third, the most important of the three, the preservation of trained manpower for the furtherance of the war effort. And in my opinion, if it hadn't been for that overriding aim, there would never have been an air sea rescue service 
on the scale that we were to know it. Because, of course, if you think of it, it could scarcely have been justified. Not purely on the humanitarian grounds of saving life. So that was the overriding aim of the newly formed Air Sea Rescue Service in uh, the spring of 1941. In fact, the life of the Directorate of Air Sea Rescue was to be very, very limited. It lasted only six months. And um, I suppose if one were to say why it lasted only six months, and this is no reflection whatsoever on, on, on the director or his staff, um, it was a boy sent on a man's errand at a time when all the world and his wife were fighting each other for whatever resources there were to be got. Um, this little directorate didn't stand a great deal of chance. And it came into being at a time uh, which was dreary in the extreme. Uh, we were losing between 200 and 250 aircrew per month in the sea. We had too little of everything, particularly too little of boats, and yet the capacity of our boat builders was limited to two craft per month. We were running into unserviceability problems, exhaust pipes and gearboxes, if I remember rightly. And on one particularly unhappy day, against the background of these quite unacceptable losses, there were only four rescue launches serviceable between the Shetland Isles and Dover. It's true that uh, as, the, as the spring turned into summer, the recovery rate, or the apparent recovery rate, because the basis on which it was calculated is a bit suspect, I think, the apparent recovery rate, rate went up from 30% to 37%. Nevertheless, the commanders-in-chief of the operational commands, who by that time, of course, had a good idea as to the extent to which air effort was going to be expanded over the next months and years, got together and said, this isn't good enough, we've got to do better. There was another meeting at the Air Ministry, as ever was, and what happened uh, was that the Directorate of Air Sea Rescue was disestablished. It was reformed as a Deputy Directorate, but this time within a much larger and newly formed Directorate of Aircraft and Aircrew Safety. Much broader based, much stronger in every respect. But mostly, mostly indeed, in the fact that the first director was none other than Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Sir John Salmon who waived all consideration of rank and status to take over what he and the commanders-in-chief of the operational commands saw as a damnably important task. And after all, Sir John Salmon, apart from being a Marshal of the World Air Force and a contemporary of Lord Trenchard, was 
one of the two people, I suppose, most concerned with the formation of the Royal Air Force itself. So if what was required to put this business on a good footing and to win the battle against our competitors, if we wanted more muscle at the top, well, by golly, we had it. And I think there's no doubt, looking back from ground level, and all this happened now in October 1941, um, one can say that by the turn of 1942, there was a general feeling that we were getting to grips a little bit better with the problem in hand. The newly formed directorate uh, inherited from its predecessor um, the four aims like, uh, which was to find the solution to four problems. And these in the policy directive was, was spelled, directive was spelled out thus. How best to teach air crew to ditch and abandon their aircraft? How to maintain the life of the crew after they had left their aircraft? How to locate ditched aircraft, uh, ditched air crew? And how best to bring them home? There was a fifth problem, and that was how best to design and modify aircraft so that they don't break up when they pancake on the water. But that was passed on to the Ministry of Aircraft Production. Now, it, it, seem, it seems to me that these four aims give us four useful pegs on which to hang something of the skeleton of air sea rescue and perhaps a little bit of flesh if, if we had the time to do it. And to take the first one first, which is ditching, which obviously comes first, there's nothing I can say. I'm not competent to, to say anything about how to bring down the aircraft on the water. But in the wider context of, um, of air-sea rescue, I think I, I can at least say this. The effectiveness of ditching, of a ditching, uh, from the rescuer's point of view, um, wasn't confined to the success with which the pilot brought his airplane down the water. Started quite a long time before that. And in particular, um, it, it, it depended upon the decision, the ditch, being taken when the aircraft had sufficient height for its emergency transmission to be DF. Now, if you didn't get a position, then, then of course, it, it was, in all conscience, hard enough to find people whose position you had some rough idea of. If you had no idea where they were, it was an impossible task. So, um, one had to make the decision early on, when you were 10,000 feet or above. And, of course, the the corollary is this, that the, if you take the decision early enough, then the crew members, each of whom had a specific task to perform as part of the ditching drill, had some reasonable chance of doing those jobs effectively. Um, if, you, if you didn't decide to ditch until you were within 3,000 feet of the water, well then, at the best, there was a mad scramble, and you were jolly lucky to get out um, without getting your feet more than wet. Little things um, that, 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 that were shown up in, in, in one or two cases sound silly in retrospect, jolly important at the time. There was a Lancaster that came back and uh, the pilot decided when they were at 17,000 feet he was going to ditch. He didn't tell anybody until they were down to 4,000 feet. He put the aircraft down perfectly. Um, they got out into their dinghy, but of course nobody had the faintest idea what had happened to him. 
because the emergency transmission reached nowhere. They were lucky, they got out into their dinghies, there was a bit of excitement, a bit of scramble. They cut themselves adrift as the drill prescribed, but in doing so they cut adrift their emergency rations and their pyrotechnics. They realized that their radio tra that their wireless transmission uh, wouldn't have got anywhere, so they went to release their pigeons, which our aircraft used to carry in those days. Part of their emergency drill was to close the boxes of the pigeons before you put the aircraft down. They'd admitted to do that, so one pigeon was drowned and the other poor chap was so wet that he couldn't get flying speed. Um, so, ditching was jolly important. And the second, the second aim, the second problem, was how to maintain the life of the aircrew once they got out of the aircraft. And um, I suppose it's, it, it, it's right to say, uh, um, although there must be exceptions, I know, that by and large, one tended to accept, I think most of us, I'm talking to chaps on the ground floor, except that if the aircrew got down safely on the water and got in their dinghies, they were virtually home and dry. It was only a matter of time. That was the sort of feeling. But by golly, it was dreadfully wrong. I don't think many of us realize how very quickly people deteriorate mentally and physically when they're subject to exposure, and particularly when the exposure follows a period in which there's a degree of shock. Fortunately, this was appreciated by some of the operational air crew, no doubt because they had first-hand experience. And some of the first approaches to, to uh, solve this problem of how to maintain the life of the aircrew once they got out of the aircraft was conceived uh, and sponsored and carried through at station level. There's a thing called the, uh, um, the Thornaby Bag, uh, which was thought up um, at RDF Thornaby with a parachute fabric strengthened with tapes and it, it, and 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 uh, made to float by bits of kapok taken from life jackets. It's a jolly good idea, an excellent idea. It went right to the root of the problem, and that is to get aid and comfort and succour to these poor chaps sitting in the water just as quickly as you possibly can. Now, unfortunately, the Thornaby bag, in fact, this wasn't terribly successful because it it it, it broke up and scattered the content sometimes, and in any case, unless it fell on top of the chap, it was damnably hard to get, get out of the water. But it was an excellent idea. A contemporary idea was the Bircham barrel, which was invented at Bircham Newton, and this was a similar idea, but in this case, in this case, it was made out of um, the cardboard tail, con tail unit containers of 250-pound bombs, uh, containing fresh water, food, cigarettes, what have you. But again, the idea of plopping down something quickly to give the chaps a boost to keep them alive until the rescue launch got to them. Like the uh, Thornaby bag, it was a jolly good idea in principle, 
um, didn't work very well for similar reason. The, the, the cardboard containers, though they were stiff and they tended to break up when they hit the sea. And um, in any case, with all these things, unless they were dropped within yards of a dinghy, it, it, it was a very chancy business recovering them. And there was a third thing, which was a lot more successful, so much so that it's still in use in modified form today. Uh, that was thought up at RDF Lindholm. Again, it depended on the cardboard containers of 250 and 500 pound bombs. The 250 pound bomb containers um, had the fresh water, cigarettes, matches and food in them. The, those from the 500 pound bombs had spare dinghies. The whole lot was strung together with buoyant line. And of course the advantage was, apart from that a lot more stuff could be dropped at once, was that um, it was dropped so as to, or at least the idea was, to drop it so that it straddled the drift path, the dinghy, and therefore they had a lot more chance of, of grabbing hold of it somewhere along the line. It was called Lindholm Gear, it's still in use today, and it, it was one of the three first, this is 1940 time, uh, three first attempts to, to overcome, to solve this problem of how to keep the chaps alive. There were, of course, other things. Bigger and better dinghies. And indeed, smaller and better dinghies, because one of the dinghies that came last, that was most useful perhaps, uh, was the K-type dinghy for fighters. So bigger and better dinghies, smaller and better dinghies. Um, the thing I'd, I'd forgotten, but I, I remembered recently, was that the dinghies that the aircrew had to begin the war, you couldn't sit in them, you had to sit on the outside, on the on the tyre uh, thing. Um, whereas the dinghies that now came flooding in, you could at least sit inboard with the back against the back against the tube, which of course was slightly was a slight improvement on, on, on sitting perched on the on the tube itself and getting yourself wet and uncomfortable. So there were more dinghies and better dinghies, dinghies with aprons. And uh, there were things called air sea rescue floats, uh, which both we and the Germans had uh, um, moored about ten miles offshore, various places around the coast. They were steel floats, uh, like a cabin on uh, on, on on ramps, um, containing self-eating soup and food and blankets and first aid kit. The idea was that um, if they were so located as to straddle the flight path of the fighter sweeps or the bomber streams, then by the grace of God, some of the chaps who fell in the sea would fall near enough to them to paddle their dinghies and get inboard and keep warm and dry until they'd be rescued. In fact, I don't think there was ever a case on record which these floats on either side, the Germans or ourselves, were used. In 1942, there were eight fighter pilots who were known to have bailed out and who were known to be safely in their K-type dinghies uh, in the Channel area, in the Western Channel, down by the Channel Islands, um, in the evening. So they couldn't be recovered until the following day, search for. But they were known to be there because they were seen by aircraft. When the launches got to them the following day, at first light or so, all these poor chaps were dead from exposure in their dinghies. And this gave added emphasis 
to the need to try to tackle this problem and the various new schemes uh, launched. Uh, one was to make dinghies, which indeed were made, uh, which had masts and sails, the idea being mostly that it gave the chap something to do and some hope that they themselves could sail away from danger. The greatest thing, of course, uh, um, that came out of this was the airborne lifeboat. It first came into service, the Mark I came into service in 1941. It's generally attributed to Upper Fox, who indeed submitted the accepted design and undertook the manufacture of the first and of the first run of the Mark Ones. But in, in, in point of fact, without detracting from his contribution, um, it, it, it was an idea first thought up by the then Deputy Director of Air Sea Rescue, Group Captain Waring, assisted by a Lieutenant Boatwright from the Navy. And their, their, their design and detailed study um, so approximated the one eventually submitted after consultation with Upper Fox that at least the honours for the airborne lifeboat could be shared between them. I suppose one could say that this was the ultimate um, in the efforts to find the solution to the problem, how to maintain the life of people once they're in the water. Um, obviously didn't always do that, but um, it did bring a great deal uh, nearer the, the time when losses due to exposure um, were cut down. The next two problems, how to locate survivors and how to bring them safely home, I think perhaps one can take together because they're really part and parcel of the same problem. In fact, if you can locate them, then the business of getting them home is comparatively straightforward. When, when the first directorate of Airship Rescue came into being, as I said before, we were losing more than 200 aircrew a month, and the recovery rate was something under 20%. And one tends to wonder why this, why this should be. If you, if you really know where the people are, well, surely, goodness, it's, it's, it's easy enough to go out and bring them in. Now, in fact, it's not. In, in fact, it, 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 it's damnably hard, or was damnably hard in the days before shipborne radar and electronic aids of location damnably easy, I'll reverse the argument, damnably easy not to find them. Now figures like 20% really don't mean a great deal, so if I can just give a bit of a perspective to that, I did my first stint in air sea rescue lasted 21 months from December 1940 until September 42 and it included some service in the Channel area, some service in the Dover Straits, and some in the North Sea, so it was fairly widely spread. It included the Dieppe operation and the Scharnhorst and the Neisenau and what have you. So in other words, there was every chance of making a good showing. Now in 21 months, um, I could claim to have been associated with the recovery of 34 people. This may not sound too bad, but I if you think of it in terms of one and a half a month, it doesn't really show much of a return for your money. But worse still, if you break it down, 27 of those 34 happened to be the crew of a ship that was sunk just off St. Catherine's Point. It only leaves seven 
And of those, one was a German. You can't count him, that leaves six. And three were dead when we recovered them. And really, this, you say, to put this 20% and how to locate them in perspective, um, 21 months of hard slogging, conscientious endeavor, and what we had to show for it was, uh, was three chaps. Now, now things, things, of course, got very much better. And in, in point of fact, um, a year and a half after that, I met one of the coxes I had at Galston, um, where we'd had this ghastly business of searching and searching and never finding anything. And he was telling me that in the previous month they'd picked up 67. So things got very much better. But, but the image that I think came from the semi-documentary film called Runaway Aircraft is Safe, the image of Air Sea Rescue, the high-speed launches bounding over sparkling sunlit sunlit seas and picking up chaps before they got their socks wet. Um, it was jolly encouraging, and it happened once or twice, but it, it, it's not really the picture. The picture in the early years, at any rate, was of long, dreary, wet and horrible searches, and very, very seldom did one um, did one come back um, loaded to the gunnels with survivors, or even with one. I'll jump ahead a bit, just to emphasize the point, in 1950, 1950, in fact, there was an American B-29 that uh, went down in daylight in the North Sea, flying from north to south. The ditching was actually seen by a fishing boat, so there's no doubt at all about it. There was wreckage strewn along the whole of this rectangle of 10 miles by 3. And within six or seven hours of the aircraft down in the water, there were 11 vessels, including two RF launches, a survey vessel with a fairly high bridge and a lifeboat and some others. 11 vessels searching in this box of 10 miles by 3, in the summer, in good weather. Now, you wouldn't think you could miss, and this is the only point I'm making. You wouldn't think you could miss. And yet, four days after the aircraft went in, and we were, we'd actually been recalled from the search, the search was abandoned, and we picked up a chap, and he said he'd been passed six times within half a mile. It's like, good seamen, conscientious lookouts, it is jolly easy, or was, jolly easy not to find people at sea, and that was the reason for the poor results. What turned the poor results into good results, or, or better results, uh, was a combination of things, of course. Uh, uh, we got more boats, uh, we had more aeroplanes, which were, of course, of the essence when it came to searching, or they were of the essence when the aeroplanes we got were the right ones with crews who were experienced in maritime reconnaissance and sea searches. Before that, um, well, uh, I, I don't know. I, I do know the frustration in having an odd aircraft appear overhead when you were two-thirds of the way through a conscientious search. You couldn't talk to him because you had no two-way voice radio, of course. You had to, and there was wireless silence. So you waggled wings and flashed an this lamp and people used to get fed up because they couldn't read it. Um, what so often happened uh, was that you'd be two-thirds of the way through a conscientious square, square search, where at least you could say in this area there is nobody because I've looked, or I think there's nobody because I've looked. Uh, the aircraft would seem to wag its wings and zoom away in the distance. You'd shoot off in, in pursuit, thinking he was showing where the dinghy was, but actually he was going home, 
and you didn't know, and so you'd abandoned your search, and you went back and started all over again. Uh, um, so, early days of air cooperation uh, weren't all that helpful. As soon as people got a grip on it, and we had walruses, and, uh, and particularly when the Waddicks came in to drop the airborne lifeboats, we trained and experienced crews that made it, and, and that was one reason why the recovery rate um, increased so dramatically. And I'll give one of the figures on that in a moment, though already I'm overrunning my time, I fear. If there is one other thing, apart from having more of everything, more of boats and more of airplanes and more of dinghies and more of... If there's one other thing which, which uh, uh, really raised the output level dramatically, it was that by 1942 we were gradually going over from call-outs, crash calls, to airship rescue operations in which, on very, very many cases, fairly large numbers of craft uh, would be pre-positioned uh, in support of operations. Dieppe was one of the first ones where this was used, uh, where there were 31 craft uh, located in the arc from uh, the North Pole and to Beachy Head. Um, earlier than that, when the air battles formed over the passage of the Scharnhorst and the Knights now, it was done. It gradually became the rule rather than the exception. Um, it was done in the Mediterranean a lot, of course, in, in all the landings there. In Overlord, the invasion, we had 139 craft and, and uh, eight and a half squadrons of aircraft doing nothing but search and rescue. Well, of course, with, 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 with that sort of effort and that sort of coordination, of course, things improved greatly. Just to give some quick comparisons. Now, I only say one more thing. The other thing that made a major contribution to effective recovery and rescue was, of course, and this came rather late in the war, when we got VHF installed in our launches. Then, for the first time, you could talk to the aircraft that were cooperating with you. The chap could say, come on, he's over here half a mile, and you could go there, and, and there, one, one, in the channel, in the Dover Straits particularly, one, one often did manage almost to catch the chap before his feet hit the water. But that, that was, wasn't to come until the tag end of 1943, early 44. So, better communications were, were a vital part. Now, just one or two comparisons here to show how the thing, how the thing grew. In 1939, we had 16 high-speed launches uh, and no aeroplanes. In 1941, we had 50 high-speed launches, home and overseas, and 18 Lysanders. But by 1942, the middle of 1942, we had 100 high-speed launches and 85 aircraft, which included amphibians and all the things that we love to have. In 1945, we had 300 high-speed launches, 160 pinnaces, 48 seaplane tenders and 40 long-range rescue craft plus 178 naval craft which were available when not required for other duties. Or another comparison, in 1939 we had 10 units from which rescue launches could operate at home and 5 overseas. In 1945 we had 45 units at home and 40 
overseas. And as I think I, I, I said a little earlier on, um, for Operation Overlord, we were able to deploy 136 rescue launches uh, in, in, in support of that, that operation and eight and a half squadrons of aircraft. And Airsea Rescue was carried out on a similar scale in the Mediterranean and Near East and a lesser scale in the Far East and West Africa. At the end of the war, the plan was to sail out 40 uh, Fairmile D launches, which we called long-range rescue launches, uh, from Calshot to Colombo to provide the rescue service, which was then envisaged to cover the inter-island warfare back to Japan. But, but in fact, only two of the squadrons of the 40, that's that 16 craft, got as far as the Mediterranean when the war stopped, and um, we all came home to a situation where, of course, there were too many resources and too few customers. Nevertheless, uh, from the end of the war onwards, the uh, Korean War, the concentration on new bombing and air firing ranges over the sea, and the threats and dangers of other wars kept Airsea Rescue very much in being, and indeed it's still in being, but in 1957 it was the helicopter that took over the primary role and the launches became a, well all the, all the launches established, for search and rescue were solely were disestablished and those that we had left tackled Airsea Rescue as and when they were invited to do so. Now if we just think back quickly to the aims of Airsea Rescue, which were the humanitarian aim of, of, of saving life anyway, the need to maintain the morale of operational aircrew, and most especially, of course, the overriding aim of recovering aircrew, trained aircrew, an invaluable asset, recovering them so that they could go back and fight again. They were the three aims, and the last one was the most important of the lot. So if, if we say, well, to what extent did, um, did Air Sea Rescue meet these aims? To what extent was it, uh, uh, was it worthwhile? Well, some figures again. It's reckoned that during the war, something over 13,000 uh, lives were saved by the Air Sea Rescue Service at home and overseas. And of this 13,000, over 8,000, 8,700 I think it was, uh, were aircrew. So, is that, is that good or bad? Well, uh, obviously, if you save 8,000 lives, it, it, um, in the modern idiom, it can't be bad. But what is it like uh, as, a, as a proportion? Well, I, I suppose you can say um, 8,000-odd aircrew could man 1,000 bombers, um, which again, can't be bad. 
or seven or eight thousand fighters. That's another perspective. Or just eight thousand five hundred jolly valuable war makers saved from the sea. But I think I think as a final as, as a final thing to put it in perspective in meeting this overriding aim. Three years ago, I think it was, at the annual dinner of the Air Sea Rescue Club, there was a chap in the 603 squadron, an air gunner, I think. Anyway, after we'd eaten, he said to me, I've got a hell of a lot to thank uh, you chaps for. Uh, and I thought for one ghastly moment he was going to say, you saved my life. It always leaves you with nothing to say except something silly. I but he didn't. He said, if it, if, it, if it weren't for your chaps, I'd have spent half my life in a POW camp. Of course, he said, uh, we were jolly unsure as to whether we should bail out over the Dutch coast or not. But he said, because we knew that Air Sea Rescue was there, uh, we took a chance, and in fact we landed safely in the UK. Now my point is, you see, how many... We talk about our 8,500 who were actually recovered from the sea. But I think if one takes up that chap's remarks, how many other aircraft and air crews got back to the UK safely and ready to be used again because, however mistakenly, however mistakenly, they thought it was a jolly good bet to come down in the sea because as sure as fate someone's going to pick them up. Now, if one is going to try to evaluate the, 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 the um, effectiveness or otherwise of air sea rescue, all I'd say is to the 8,500 chaps that we can account for, let's um, add a few more for those who, because they thought they were going to be rescued from the sea by their own rescue service, took a chance, flew across the North Shield Channel and were able to fight again. Thank you. I should thank you, yes. Uh, um, I should really have said, but, but I obviously missed my cue, that among the many things that were, that were done to, to, to solve these problems, uh, there was one which had a cross-the-board implication, and that was... Um, indoctrinating aircrew and and cultivating the right attitudes and of course it culminated in the in, in the formation of the air sea rescue school at blackpool in 1943 where they had their own as you know their own swimming pool their own boats their own aircraft and uh, yes the, the 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 posters and the air publications and all those things which contributed towards towards building up the right sort of attitudes towards the ditching and the survival and the rescue were absolutely invaluable. Uh, oddly enough, and I, I'm sure you must have heard this yourself, but in the early days of the war, if you were ever fortunate enough to come across a dinghy with air crew in, in, and, and they were sitting in their dinghy, smoking their cheap cigarettes and chewing their Horlicks tablets and flying their kite aerial, you could bet your life they weren't British. They 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 were always allied or, or, or far, 
foreign people, for some reason or other, they probably had had a harder lesson in how to survive than, than, than we had. If you came across a dinghy with the chaps draped over the side, um, with everything spilled about in the early days of the war, and and the pamphlets and the uh, and, and the publications and the posters, and the above all the the air sea rescue school and the air sea rescue officers appointed to every operational station, changed that. So by 1942. Um, you didn't know if you saw the chaps sitting upright and enjoying themselves, whether they were British or whether they were Polish or or or, 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 or free French. And, and it was nice to nice to know. Thank you. No, I I think I think this is this is correct. Uh, and and I remember very distinctly going to the the Air Sylvester School at Blackpool shortly after it opened, uh, and um, they they claimed. However, justifiably at that time, they claimed that they could teach anybody, and they did teach anybody to swim in seven minutes. <laughs> um, but the, the 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 interesting thing is that that they 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 departed completely from the what was then the conventional idea of swimming by teaching you a a stroke to do this with your legs and this with your hands. And they they did what they had a bob apple. So I went and saw these luckless chaps. Non-swimmers lined up each side of the swimming pool, like this, you see, uh, with an instructor. And when the instructor said bob, you bobbed, and you bobbed down, and you grabbed your ankles. And because immediately you did so, or tried to do so, you bobbed to the surface, because you were buoyant. And they reckoned that by teaching them, first of all, the confidence that, 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 that you were buoyant in water, that it was a, a short step, in fact, seven minutes, they said, to teach you to paddle off. Um, yeah. Well, this is, this, this is certainly so. Um, and just to expand on that, when we get back to, when we, if we refer back to the, to the better rescue, rescue results in additional aircraft, because one of, one of the great boons, particularly in the Dover Straits or even elsewhere, was when they had sufficient aircraft, uh, um, deployed for search and rescue, that we were able to have fighter escorts when we went a long way from home, like across the Dutch coast or, or out in the channel, and, and, and this was a really cheering, cheering business to to feel that you had your own own chaps looking after you. It, it um, helped you to concentrate your mind a little more on what you were doing and not what somebody else might be about to do. Thank you. It's 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 it, it, it's a sad thought, of course, that that, that the Germans had uh, an airship rescue service um, before the war, and and they had a a single seater fighter dinghy before we did, yes. The the um the Mark One and the Mark One A, which are virtually the same craft, the Mark One A being modified to fit in the Bombay of a Warwick, um they had a sort of outboard engine that fitted in inboard, didn't they? Fit fitted through a hole in the hole, hole in the hull. Um it was probably effective enough to keep your head to sea and make a make a couple of knots if the if 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 the tidal stream wasn't running too strongly against you. Um, oddly, oddly enough, there were, there were many cases, or are many cases on on record, of, and this is a, a sidelight on this business of physical and mental deterioration due to exhaustion, who had actually got as far as clambering aboard the airborne lifeboats. And then flopped down and said, said to hell with it and didn't uh, read the booklet which said take the starting handle from the deck space mark A and which is a pity. Yeah.
Um, let, let's have a fact, first of all. Uh, one of the facts is that, 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 that T. Lawrence, although he was mustered in the trade of Clark General Duties and in the rank of AC1, T. Lawrence undertook the acceptance trials personally of the first of the 200 class seaplane tenders. So that is a fact. And um, I know the Ministry have a record of, of his operating notes and, and what have you. Now, the, the, the rest of the story is this, is, is this, that in, and I've got a quote here somewhere, as I might be fine, but, but um, Lawrence had given to him a small hard chine skimmer type motorboat called a baby something or other by the Purdy Boat Company of the United States. And this, this was in Oh, 1929, 28, 29, I guess, that, that, that sort of time. And this so impressed him that he became something of a champion of the merits of the hard shine design and construction. Now, of course, around about that time, there was Hubert Scott Payne with the British Powerboat Company, who in the face of a great deal of opposition from the more conventional boat builders, was trying to sell government departments, the Navy and ourselves, um, the merits of hard shine construction for larger seagoing craft. Lawrence managed to get himself attached to the British Powerboat Company, where he linked up with people like uh, Corporal Bradbury and then Commander, you'll have his Jinman, and there's another chap, wasn't there? Never mind, he, he, he linked up with this team that went to the British Powerboat Company and worked with Scott Payne and his designers on producing the first of the 200 class seaplane tenders, um, which had two things in its favour. Um, firstly, it was claimed, or its class was claimed to be the fastest craft per foot per horsepower in the world, however rightly. Secondly, it was certainly so successful, as you know, that it was the first of a long line of seaplane tenders that virtually, under a different name, sawed us through until we lost flying boats in 1957. But I think it had one other merit, and that was that it was sufficiently successful in proving the point of the hard shine construction that it really greased the wheels or opened the gates for the build and introduction of the first of the high-speed launches, RDF-100. Now, what Lawrence's contribution was, I don't know. I was at Calshot within months of his having left there. Some people uh, inferred that it was Lawrence's genius that had got the thing off the ground and that he was pulling Scott Payne and his chums behind him. Others said no. My own feeling is this, that one can at least say that Lawrence, with his links with Lord Trenchard and Churchill and you name them, he had them, uh, with his enthusiasm for new things, undoubtedly gave a great deal of impetus to Scott Payne's efforts to sell the government department's hard shine craft. So uh, I, that, that's all I can say. Thank you. I had a Thanks. Thanks.